Lee, thanks for coming on today. Really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule. This is awesome, Chris. I can't, uh, I can't wait to get into it. I've been waiting for this uh, podcast for a long time, so thank you. No, and I really, really do appreciate it. I've, I've been following your stuff for a while now, uh, and I know we talked, uh, I think, a month ago uh, yeah. in particular, and some of, some of the details that we got into. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan, and then your content that you've been putting out online as well, and I know you've got some big things, uh, big things coming, so I, I am really excited, um, and I know the listeners, uh, they will be as well. But just before we get into that, why don't you just give us a little bit of background um, about yourself, kind of who is Lee Taft and, and what's he doing at the moment? Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so, yeah, I've been in, in uh, sports, gosh, my entire life. I, uh, I started my, my professional career as a phys ed teacher in the, in the later 80s. And while I was teaching, I was also coaching three sports. I was coaching American football, I was coaching basketball, and I was coaching track and field. But I was also starting at that time to train athletes on the side. You know, I had parents asking me to work with their kids. And so I would uh, meet them at parks and do them in driveways and stuff like that. And, and then after just a couple years of working in the public school system, I just, I wanted to get more into uh, the strength and conditioning field. So I started my master's at the United States Sports Academy in Alabama. And from there, I ended up at uh, Bola Terry's Tennis Academy, which everybody knows now as IMG. And, um, and that was in 91. And so from that point on, Chris, I just, I kind of chased the academies a little bit. I went to another academy up in Tampa, which was called Palmer. And then I went to University of Kentucky uh, did some training on the side, but I also worked with the men's tennis team there. And then I opened up in 94 was my first facility I opened up and it was up in uh, New York where I'm from. And, uh, and then ever since then, I've, I've owned several facilities. I went back into teaching for a little bit, but I never stopped training. And over time, what happened is I went from, you know, like all of us do training 14, 15, 16 hours a day to eventually I got more into consulting and it was very organic. It was just area coaches would ask or administrators would say, hey, could you come in and help our coaches? And one thing led to the next. If you do a good job, they'll tell somebody else. And then it, so over the last three, four years, I've probably had 40 travel engagements per year where I traveled all over the world and, and do a lot of consulting with uh, colleges, pro teams, facilities, and Yep, and that's led me to here today to share the mic with you. So it's been fun. Absolutely, and such such an interesting journey as well. Like so many many experiences over the years, and I think it's those experiences that you collect along the way that are just just invaluable. So I think like with, within Thank that, you. what are you? Um, what kind of got you really interested in in movement within kind of tennis in particular? Yeah. So. Um, I was always a, a fairly quick athlete, wasn't very big. You know, I graduated high school. You know, I was, I think I grew two inches in college, actually. I'm only 5'10 now. So I was never a really big athlete, but I was quick. I was fast. I played, uh, I played uh, in high school. I played four sports, tennis being one of them. In college, I played four years of college basketball, but I also played two years of college tennis. And the funny thing is the only reason I only played two years is because I transferred to a, a, a college called SUNY Cortland, which is near Syracuse, above Binghamton, you know, kind of in the middle of the state of New York. They didn't have a men's tennis team. They had women, <laughs> they didn't have men. So, uh, so I ended up stopping there, but I continued to play a lot of tournaments and stuff like that. 
and then I and then I I started teaching it a little bit, and then when I went to Bulletary's, um, I was a strength coach working with it. And from that point on, I'd never gotten away from it. I've always worked with players. Um, I continued to play a little bit here and there, not as much obviously as I. I liked it. So I was always involved. My whole family was involved with it. You know, I, we always played as kids all the way up through. So it was one of those sports that I looked at as I was never a great technical player. Like I would be like Brad Gilbert's book there, Play Ugly, or I forget what it is. That was me. I was a junk player, but I could get to every ball. I was quick and I would drive opponents nuts. And I knew I could do that. So I just kept getting the ball back and hitting it. Well, that got me interested in, in speed and in movement. And I'm thinking between that and my basketball and, and actually back in the mid eighties is when I really started paying attention to it when I was still in college and I was taking like biomechanics classes and thinking, man, that's, I want to look more into that. And that's how I got interested in it. And then I started to realize, and again, Chris, this was at a time when we didn't have access to YouTube and stuff that we didn't have it. I used to go to the library and I could never find anything on like multi-directional speed or change of direction. I could find stuff on sprinting and track and field, you know, in the eighties, all the Eastern Bloc country methods and European methods, the German textbook of spring, I had all that stuff. So I started creating my own, my own model. I'd watch somebody move, I'd watch old video and I'd say, okay, I keep seeing that same pattern over and over with hundreds of athletes doing the same type of things. And that's how I started to create concepts that just made sense to me. And then as I started sharing them to coaches, they're like, well, yeah, that makes sense. I, we see the same thing with our athletes. I'm like, yeah, there's something there. I don't know what it is yet. And then as I got more into the science and studied physics and, and why we move, then I'm like, okay, there it is. The central nervous system is dropping clues. We just gotta be ready to pick them up and pay attention. So, so that's, yeah, that's kind of how it happened. I, and I love it. I love uh, the movement. No, that's, yeah, and that's awesome. I think, what do you think that the benefits are of, obviously you mentioned your, your background playing the sport there. Do you think that's a huge part of, of your development as a coach, not only obviously as a player, but do you think that gave you a very, very good kind of perspective on, on what to expect on the court? It did, especially early on as a young coach, right? Um, because I was able to say to my athletes, yeah, I get it. I know what you're feeling. You know what I mean? I know when they say that doesn't feel right. I say, I know, I know it doesn't, but give it time. This is why, because I felt the same way. Or if we're teaching them how to gain more translation out of a split step to get a massively hit a wide uh, serve, you know, I'm split step, I'm ready to go. And they give you one of those big, you know, hook serves that drives you way outside the doubles line. Well, I can talk to them about you have to be able to explode through space, escape space laterally. I said, you can't, you can't put both feet firmly on the ground evenly and then expect to move. You've got what I call a glide step. Mm -hmm. And, and so I can say that to them and because I felt it as where when I worked with other athletes in sports that I've never personally played at a, like a high level, I have to do more research. I have to do more video analysis. And I have to maybe talk to somebody like you who maybe had exposure to that and say, hey, Chris, what did you see in this sport when you played? Then I can give them more. But seeing I play tennis, I can say, yep, 
I know, I know what you're saying. I know why you're complaining because I complain too, but this is the bottom line. This is how it's going to work. And then you'll, you'll be better at it. So yeah, it definitely helped. Yeah. And I, I 100% agree. And actually the thing that comes back into my mind is I was, was it maybe 18 months ago now, I was just kind of on court and I was hitting with, with one or two of the guys just as a bit of fun, like no practice or anything. We're not breaking any NCAA rules. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> but then we started really getting into it. And like I played growing up till I was about 18 and then stopped and played rugby. And I kind yeah. of started getting into it with the guys and we we're getting quite aggressive. And this isn't me saying like I'm as good as the guys playing on a D1 team. 100% not the case. I can hit up the <laughs> middle. If you move me laterally, I'm gone. I don't have the talent. <laughs> um, but I just remember the next day waking up and my obliques and everything oh, yeah. was so sore. And I was like, yeah, like I forgot what that was like. So I think I that kind of just made me reminisce and remember what these guys go through. Um, and I think there's a little bit of, they see you being able to like hit a little bit as well be like oh okay maybe he does know what he's talking about there's a little bit of that in there as well but I think from our point of view of coaching it's that's what that feels like it kind of takes you back uh, and I think that's very important to, to have that perspective as well yeah I agree 100 percent. it does it lets it and it just gives you credibility in their eyes eventually if you're a good coach you'll you'll earn their respect and credibility but if you've played it and you can talk the language a little bit. You can say some things that only a tennis player would know or hear. I think it just buys a little bit more credibility. Yeah, no, 100%. So then just, just on that, obviously, as we get into to movement, before we get into some of the kind of the details, if you're working with a, a 12-year-old or an 18-year-old or even a pro player, what are, your, what are your big rocks that you go to like early on? Like, this could be assessment. It could be just movement quality that you look to and kind of make sure are in place as the foundations before you start building upon that. Yeah, that's a really, really good question. And I would say, uh, I kind of mentioned it a little bit ago. I'm really big on escaping current space and attacking new space. Okay, so... Uh, just a real easy example, two examples that, that the listeners would, would understand is if I'm fairly deep in the baseline and all of a sudden my opponent uh, does a drop shot on me, well, I have to escape that deep space in, in the baseline and I have to get up to the net as quick as possible. Or if I'm at the net and they give me a lob, now I got to escape that space and I got to get back to, to retrieve that lob. Or that could be going going out to my forehand or my backhand to recover, not to recover, but to get to a wide ground stroke. I think if we can get athletes, young or elite, to understand the mechanics that, that help them best to escape that space, you know, when I hit my split step, you know, following kind of these steps, like push open and now drive like you're a sprinter. You're trying to win a race. The race happens to be getting to the ball so you can hit a good shot coming back. Um, I think if I can get my players to do that, even if it looks a little bit ugly at first, it's kind of like when we, you know, I remember Andre Agassi saying when he was a kid, his dad said, just swing, swing hard. We'll, we'll make it go in the court eventually. But if you don't learn that sequencing and just like with golfers, they'll say swing, We'll teach you to hit the ball, but let's get that timing of sequencing down. That's kind of the way I treat speed. I'm like, let me see you just go, go hard. And if it looks pretty rough, all right, I can fix that with corrective exercises. I can, I can work on mechanical things with you. Maybe it's doing some A skips to understand position of arm and legs, or maybe it's doing a resisted band shuffle to help 
produce more force in the correct direction or whatever that may be. But my biggest rock is I need to move you through space quickly. And I'll look at athletes. And so, for example, if we're talking about a younger kid, maybe it's a younger boy or girl that's fairly weak. They might not want to bend their knees in a lot because it's uncomfortable. It's hard. They don't have the power as where if I look at, you know, somebody like a Nadal or somebody who's got strong hips and legs and can come out of a low squat and they actually feel more comfortable there. Uh, now I, I but, but I might have to say to him, okay, you're really good in that power component, but we got to get a little bit more elasticity. You know, we got to get you to be, so we can, that's how I would assess them. But if I can just talk to them about escaping space, move, then at least I know I've got them moving in the right direction. Mm-hmm. No, I like, I like that a lot. And it's, I think there's similar, similar concepts, obviously that happen in like football and basketball as well. Like, I think those principles can be definitely applied across the board. Yeah. Now, I don't want to, I'm going to come back. You mentioned something very interesting there in terms of, I think it was like Federer making him maybe more elastic if he's very comfortable in that position. I'm actually going to hold on to that one and I'm going to come back to it in a little bit. Great. But I want to, because I think it is very important what you mentioned there. Um, but I want to go to deceleration. I think that's very important as well. Yeah. And I think a lot of coaches, maybe that are less experienced, straight away getting into the field, it's all about outputs. We look to how quickly can we, if we're talking tennis, how quickly can we get from the baseline to the net? And it's all about a 10-yard sprint time or something like that. Whereas we don't think about, it's all kind of all, break, uh, all gas, no brakes. And we've yep. got to almost flip the switch because if your body doesn't know necessarily that you can slow down in that space, then you're, there's going to be like a little bit of a handbrake on there still because your body's being careful. It's that kind of that response that it's almost the brakes are coming on. We can't go as fast as we want because of the net in the way or there's a fence in That's the way right. or there's an opponent, for example. So we can't go as hard as we want because our brakes aren't fully developed. So can you just talk us a little bit through your kind of uh, deceleration um, progressions? And, and I think maybe why is, why is deceleration actually important? Yeah. Yeah. That's really critical. I'm so glad you mentioned that because people need to understand this, because it's not sexy, right? It's not, mm-hmm. it's not as sexy as, you know, dunking a basketball or, or uh, hitting a running forehand down the line, you know, but I, I'll always tell athletes, you want to be, you want to be great other than just one movement or one shot, right? Okay. So maybe you hit a great forehand, you ran out and you hit that forehand but then your opponent hit it to the other side of the court and you can't get there because you couldn't decelerate and then re-accelerate, right? So we want to be better than just one shot. So I, I, what I developed is to, to help uh, coaches, uh, athletes, therapists, uh, people to understand a system to help athletes feel very comfortable with this deceleration is it's just called a three-part, three-phase deceleration system. So basically, Chris, it would be like if you and I were working together and you're my coach and you're trying to either introduce to me or I've just come off an injury, but I'm cleared to do some movement, or maybe I had two months off, I went vacationing, and now I'm just getting ready to get back into it, right? In any of this case, you might say, hey, let's start you at our lowest impact uh Uh, mechanics dealing with deceleration. So there's about eight or nine deceleration patterns that I typically teach. One of them could be just a jump stop or a split step, or it could be a lunge stop, right? 
But what I'll do is I'll put a band around someone. So you are my coach, you have a band around me and I'm facing away from you. And you say, Lee, I want you to run to that cone. It's five meters away. When you get there, I want you to do a, a lunge stop on your left leg, okay? And hold that position. Well, because you have a little band around me, you've actually taken a percentage of my body weight away. And we call that hitting the position. All you're trying to do is let me feel comfortable that I can hit that position I don't have all my body mass going into it yet. I've slowed down a little bit and I hit it and, and I'm getting very competent in hitting those positions. And then the next phase, you just take the band away and say, okay, hey, your body weight now, I want you to run out five yards, hit that position again and stick it. Awesome, I got it. And then maybe a few weeks later you say, okay, now we're gonna do what we call own the position. Now we're doing the same thing. You put the band back around me, but now we're facing each other and you're actually pulling me into the deceleration. So you just artificially increase my momentum and more that mass means more now. And, but I still have to hit that lunge stop and I have to be able to hold it. So that is a system that any coach can use with any athlete. They don't even need a partner. They can just attach it to the fence and they could use the fence to do that. But what it does is it allows the tissues to become more, um, uh, you know, uh, whether we want to talk about tensile strength because it does take a little bit of time and we can do that over time, but it just allows the tissues to get more ready, uh, to be prepared, uh, to become more resilient to that hard impact. And we can also, by slowing it down in that phase one, we can show them, hey, this deceleration pattern is going to be a direct heel flat foot, ball of the foot, then settle in contact versus, no, this one, because you're doing it laterally, is going to be mid foot, flatten. It'll hit outside for a second just because of fatty pads and stuff like that, fat pads and, and hydraulics and movement. But then you're going to settle back into the middle, middle part of the foot or the, uh, med, uh, the inside part of the foot. Um, so we can actually we can actually help them feel the movements a lot less and then we can make it go very dynamic and very explosive and then make it even reactive if we, if we want but when they develop that now they have that uh almost like you said that, that like a governor on a on a uh on like a moped if you take that governor off that normally goes 30 miles an hour you take that thing off now you can get it up to 50 <laughs> illegally right well now you just gave that to your athletes you just gave them the ability because the body now knows, hey, I've been there, I've done that, I've been trained, my proprioceptives are used to it, we can, we can turn it on a little bit later rather than decelerating you too soon, and now we can let you get through that full range of motion, and now we can be quicker. In and out. Like you said, I can get real close to that net and still feel confident I can decelerate to make the shot and not hit the net, right? So yeah, that's what we look at. That's how we take them through them and just build it up. And then, and then we make our adjustments based on the individual athletes and what we feel we see in the weight room as well. I think that makes a lot of sense as well. Like what you talk about those, those different stages where you're taking some of the body weight away, making it easier for the athlete and then just essentially just progressively overload, just like we do in the weight room. You're just doing it with movement, progressively overload the, the tissues. That's um, right. And, and to make another point on that, not to interrupt you, Chris, but I, I look at pure deceleration training, whether it's stopping dead, like I, I have to stop before I get to this line, or it's slowing down over a small distance. 
I look at that as an extension of the weight room more than I do uh, change of direction or reacceleration, which is part of the, that's part of the phase of decelerating, simply because it does have so much of the eccentric loading. It has so much of a strength quality to it. And I have a destination stopping point for the most part, just like I do. If you say to me, Lee, I want you to do a front squat and I want you to go to parallel or slightly below stop and boom, come back up. Well, we can do the same thing with deceleration training as where reacceleration training is different. Now that's very task driven as where we're you know, chasing a ball or a, an opponent or something like that. And on that as well then, do you use a lot of things like um, altitude drops and stuff like that? So we're jumping off a box and we'll just stick in that base position or even like a split lunge position. How do you incorporate that type of overload training? Like you said, it's, it's an extension of the weight room. Some of those things we do naturally in the weight room anyway. Um, and we can kind of go almost a little bit off topic here, but I think it's very relevant that maybe yeah. some of the things we, that we class as traditional strength training can be done on the court anyway. That's right. Absolutely. I, I 100% do. I, I love the depth jumps. I love, uh, you know, even even for a, a younger athlete, just stand as tall as you can on your tippy toes, get up as high as you can. And then I want you to drop. There's a box behind you that if you touch it, you're going to be below 45 degrees. So don't touch it. Right. So when you drop, don't let your your backside touch it. Stop before you get there. Right. And now that's giving them an external cue uh, and it's giving them a destination. Right. Mm -hmm. It's a just don't go beyond that. So it gives them something to work towards. And then I can say, all right, well, let's try that again. But now I'm going to stand you up on this 12 inch box. Now do it again. Right. And so, yes, we can do it and we can smartly progress it to to meet the demand of the athlete at the stage they're in. And do you ever, just out of interest, do you ever push them if to, so they can jump off a box and then into kind of a wide forehand hold position and things like that, just to kind of overload the, the tissues in, in those positions that you see on the court? Yeah, especially angular. You know what I mean? So like if I'm standing on a box and I, I so if the box is right here and I kind of jump off 45 degrees, get into that open stance forehand and stick. Bam, right there. Now, the nice thing is you can do that exact same thing like I talked about before in those three phases. So I could put a band around you and say, go ahead, I got you, you're good. Then I can take the band away. Then I can pull you into it, maybe with a, one, a, a really light band, but it's still a kinesthetic sensation that they have to overcome. So yeah, definitely, I love those. And then I've actually, I'm going to, I'm going to steal that one. Actually, I'm going to use that with one of our, I, <laughs> I, think all yours. That, I think that can be used as well. Not only from a like on court fully fit athlete perspective, like there's your return to play as well. Taking, right. taking the load off the athlete and then progressing, progressing that way. That's the thing, first thing that came to my hand there, uh, my head right. is we can progress our, if you've got an ACL athlete, for example, and she, she's not comfortable at loading the wide backhand then all of a sudden we just take a little bit of her load away from her. And now we can start progressing and moving in the right directions, building confidence because confidence is the thing that if you return to the court and you're not confident in your, confident in your abilities, you're five times more likely to re-injure. Re so that's I think right. what and that's where is, this go on, sorry. Exactly. That's where this whole uh, three phase kind of came from years ago. I mean, even over 20 something years ago, I just started to get a lot of ACL athletes. They start parents, started to reach out to me. I had my speed Academy in New York and 
And then what happened was physical therapists used to say, well, they're done with us, but they're not ready to play yet. And then I started to get orthopedists started to see what we were doing. And that's kind of how I developed it. And I'm like, okay, they have to be able to decelerate. And I, you know, I can't run next to them and just hug them when they start to, you know, to slow them down. So I, I said, well, I'll just use a band. I'll go with them. And as soon as they're ready to start it, I give them a little tug. And it's like, they're like, man, I didn't even feel anything. I said, well, good. I'll take a little bit off. And then I started messing with the system and it, and it does. I would say as selfish as we are as strength coaches, like we want our athletes exploding. We want to hit that high end stuff where we really make an impact is helping those athletes who, mm-hmm. who are so afraid to come back. We can help them feel really good. Then they come back even quicker because they now aren't afraid to load. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, 100%. Now, if we just taken a slight step back there, um, going, obviously, keeping with the deceleration theme, can we just yep. talk, you mentioned um, some of the kind of linear deceleration patterns, and you, you talked uh, striking with the heel, going to the flat foot, to the ball of the foot. Can you just talk me through that? If we think about, as it, we'll stick with the tennis theme, going from baseline to, to the drop shot, for example, what are you kind of yep. coaching your athletes here? Are we emphasizing, like, drive, just for those younger coaches that maybe haven't, worked with tennis players and things like this, or even linear deceleration patterns. Are we, are we saying, all right, drive the heel into the ground, use it as a brake, like kind of like the brake pedal on your car, slam the foot down. What's happening with kind of pronation versus supination? Is there anything you're thinking about as a coach? You're probably not talking pronation, supination with the athlete, but what, what's going through your mind as you're kind of teaching this? Yeah, don't let me forget, because I want to answer that from the beginning, but don't let me forget to talk pronation, supination, and I'll yep. tell you how I manipulate that. But um, so definitely. So uh, best example is of what you just described is running towards the net for a drop shot, knowing that um, most likely not going to do a split step. I'm going to do because I know where the ball is. So I'm going to go into what we would call a lunge type position, but it's a volley. So if I'm volleying with my right hand, chances are I would have my left foot forward, but it's possible to be open stance too. It just depends on what that athlete reads at that time. So if I go forward, I use my, my left foot coming forward. Um, just like you and I would say when we're teaching running to young athletes, we're like, well, geez, if you land on your heels, guys, you're going to put, that's like putting your brakes on, right? That's the old thing we always say. Well, now we want to do that, right? Because if I go forward and I allow my calcaneus, my heel, to to contact the ground first. I know just because of mechanics, that means my shin is pointing towards the direction I'm moving towards, okay? As where when I'm sprinting, I want my shin facing away from the direction I'm going, right? I want to push down and back. So this way, that way, automatically, I know I'm going to put the brakes on. And because I'm hitting on my heel, I have less bandwidth. I have less play as where if I hit midfoot or forefoot, I have all the mid torso joint. I have all the, you know, movement potential there. I could go anywhere and it's very unstable, which means I could potentially roll my ankle or just become very sloppy looking and, and stumble. So if I land on my heel, I immediately get to put on decelerators. It, it's out in front of me. It's much more stable. It's a nice, big, solid looking rock, that calcaneus. And it helps me decelerate really well. Then when I'm doing that, immediately what happens is my foot rolls and it flattens out my, my, my um, femur 
starts to glide forward. So my knee starts going forward. And that's when my, my quadriceps are turning on, my hips are turning on, my lumbar erectors are turning on so I don't fall over like a tree that just got cut down, right? And all that stuff is, is slowing me down. And as more foot touches, I'm getting more sensory input. Now I can get my big toe involved and I, now I got my glutes and my perineals and all that stuff is starting to say, okay, now I know where we are. I know what to do. I feel my body moving over it. So I better turn these guys on to help us slow down. And so you and I can teach that in a very, very controlled setting by literally saying, hey, let's learn how to lunge. Let me have you lunge forward with your left foot and stop quickly. And if you want to pretend that you're volleying, now jog forward three steps and do the same thing. And then eventually, maybe six, seven weeks, hey, sprint as hard as you can for 10 meters, now do that. And that's how we lead them, but we start talking to them first. If you, if, and here's the thing, Chris, if I'm just doing that forward lunge that I talked about, if I just said, hey, start here, just take a lunge forward and stop, I could land on the ball of my foot and I could probably control that. Mm -hmm. But if I'm going at massive speeds, like chasing a drop shot, and I land on the ball of my foot first, which immediately tells us um, either with my shin pointing back towards under my body, which is a very unstable position from going forward and having to stop, mm -hmm. or if my foot, if my shin is still angled out in front and the ball of my foot touches, that means I went into great plantar flexion, which is incredibly unstable to stop us, right? I, my gastroc and all that stuff is kind of like saying, what the heck's going on here? So, so that's really, in a nutshell, what we're looking at, why we want the heel to touch, because that proprioceptively tells everything else. Okay, here it comes, here it comes. Now the foot's down, boom. Now I can turn on all the other decelerators from the, from the bottom up. Mm -hmm. And then what happens there when, like, obviously we mentioned that like pronation, supination, and then even um, kind of obviously uh, like abduction and things like that, like what's happening in the foot? You see a lot of, uh, a lot of athletes as they approach the net turn and slide with their feet. Are, are you teaching that? Is that something natural that you don't necessarily touch? How does, how does that work in your system? When I, when I uh, worked with um, players that had to play clay, either red or, or, you know, hard or whatever, we would work on things like that. We would teach them what to do. Now, guys are, and girls are so fast now and they're so good. They, I mean, they slide on the hard courts like they do on clay. Some of them, it's amazing watching them do it. And um, so we just talk about um, your leg is going to do something pretty natural. Don't let your upper body screw that up. So if the upper body gets way out of position, so now that really nice looking leg plant doesn't matter anymore because your upper body screwed it up. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about and how we, how we do it with them without making it too um, uh, verbal and talking about stuff they don't understand and want to understand. We'll just drive it through a drill, like using a medicine ball to maybe enhance their momentum and have them have to control their momentum. So if we start going back to what we talked about pronation and supination, if I, if I do, let's say I do this forward uh, run to the net and I turn my left foot kind of sideways because it's acting as a brake too. So it's almost like a lateral stop. And if I were to really emphasize to that player, I want you to supinate. I want you to get to the outside. 
Well, with supination comes plantar flexion. And that is a, a strategy that opens the ankle. It helps extension. It helps me finish a movement. It's not a very compact type thing, which I do want when I want to decelerate and change directions. So now I've just opened them up to a potential uh, loss of balance or at worst, an, an, an ankle sprain or something like that, uh, or possibly knee or hip, depending on which the weak link is, right? But if they, if they are able to feel that medial part of the foot and the great toe and the medial portion of that calcaneus, that heel, well, now they can use adductors, they can use glute medius, they can use the quads correctly, the knee via the shin that goes internally rotate a little bit, loads the hip up top. So I can get all those positions by them feeling that. And how do we do that? Well, if I took a medicine ball and if my left leg was in front and I took that medicine ball and I drove it across my body or even from my, my right shoulder down by my left hip, action reaction of physics tells us where there's an action, there's gonna be a reaction. So if I drive to the outside, I'm gonna create pronation. Most people say, no, it's gonna drive it outside. No, 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 I said, because the body's gonna protect itself. So it's gonna come back inward. Mm -hmm. But if I wanna make it supinate, I'll go just the opposite. Mm -hmm. And so we, that's how we get athletes to feel it without having to listen to me ramble. I'm like, all right, just go from here to here. Give me, you know, give me three sets of five and that's all they have to know, right? You and I wanna know what's happening mechanically. And that's how we do it. That's how we get them to feel those positions. Oh, I like that. So it's just you're you're shaping the learning environment for them. You're not necessarily saying, okay, well, find the inside edge. It's yeah. just like, all right, yeah. well, hold this med ball, throw Unless it across your body. To, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yep. And you know, and I can guarantee you, you probably got players on your your uh, your team right now that are very inquisitive. Like they're like, all right, why are we doing this? And then you got others that are like, oh, I don't care. I just got I got to get back to class or something like that, right? <laughs> so you get the spectrum. Some people want to know. Some don't want to know. So I respect their wishes, you know, based on that. And does that stay with the deceleration theme, just moving laterally now? Because we know that tennis, for the most part, is dependent on playing style around 75, 79% lateral movement. Yes. How does that look from a deceleration standpoint? Are we, is anything changing there or are the principles the same? Yeah, principles are pretty much the same. It's, it's if, if I'm, what happens intuitively is the, it's like the nervous system, central nervous system just kind of knows how fat, it knows if I'm, if I'm in danger of not, you know, landing my foot really well based on speed. So if I'm standing dead center in the middle of the court and you and I are rallying and you hit a ball about five feet to my right, well, I, you know, there's no threat to me. I'll take a, a, a quick open step and then I'll step and I'll hit it. But if you hit it right up the singles line, almost driving me outside the doubles line, all of a sudden my body says, okay, get ready because now you're gonna have to not only go fast, but you're gonna to have to now control that. So when I change directions from that lateral, so let's say I hit an open stance with my right, my forehand. So my right foot is, my toe is kind of pointing the sideline, basically. Uh, it would be angled a little bit different, but kind of that way. Now, the next movement is when, as I swing, everything kinetically just comes around with it. And all of a sudden, and this is what I, this is one thing I'll say to my athletes a lot. I always like you to have your hip bone and your ankle bone facing the same direction. Because if I can get you there, I can, I know you're pretty safe. As where if we've got extreme torsion on that, 
um, we got to be careful of that. Now, I, I know that's going to happen, but we don't, we, we let that happen naturally versus saying, no, I want you to really torque your knee as hard as you can. <laughs> like we would never do that, right? But we would say, if I can get your hip and your ankle bone facing the same direction, now I can get into dorsiflexion, I can pronate, I can get to the inside, I can have my knee inside the foot, my hip inside the knee, and the line from that right foot pushing off goes up through my inside shoulder. That's the line I want. I don't want it on the closest shoulder. I want it on the other one because that's what will drive me forward. So now that deceleration makes sense to them, that angle when they stick into the ground. And Chris, we can practice that literally just doing a shuttle run. We could put them on the sideline and say, hey, go to the center line back, go to the singles line back, the doubles line back, and let's practice hitting those angles. Then we can make it more specific like they're hitting a ground stroke. Mm -hmm. No, I think that, and that's important as well, like teaching them and again, shaping that learning environment. We talked a little bit off air how we, you might use like a cone pickup drill just to reinforce those positions. And like you said, trying to create that line from the ankle through the opposite shoulder so we can actually exactly. produce force. And more importantly, I think, and that's where I think starting with deceleration is very important and the foundation of everything you do, because everything we do from a, an or a deceleration point of view is to get us into the most optimal position to get us back to acceleration which is our yes. moneymaker at the end of the day. That's right. And you mentioned it early when we were talking about it. If an athlete doesn't have confidence or if the coordination, the co-contraction and the coordination or, or the lack of co-contraction uh, doesn't exist, then the athlete will never reach their potential. I always use the example of elite boxers versus beginners. An elite boxer can snap a punch all the way and not worry about getting a hyperextension because their, their coordination has been developed where the body can decelerate late through that full range of motion. You know, if I throw a punch as hard as I can, my elbow is going to probably snap, right? I, or more than anything, my body will say, no, 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 I'm not, I'm going to start slowing you down here. So your punch is going to feel like a mouse just hit you, right? Absolutely. So, but that over time, if I did it, you know, thousands of reps, eventually I'd be able to go full range. And that's what you were talking about earlier when you were saying, once we understand we can control how much speed we have, then our body will let us do it. Mm -hmm. And then, so staying with that kind of lateral movement theme, if we look at kind of teaching progressions um, and look to like the shuffle and the crossover step in particular, that's a very much a, a not necessarily a hot topic within tennis, but a lot of people talk about um, the shuffle and, and obviously the crossover step has been vital and really important for tennis players. I don't necessarily disagree with that. I've got my own opinions on it, which I think we've, we've kind of talked about a little bit off air, but I'd just like to get uh, your opinion on the shuffle and crossover step. Is it optimal? What's maybe the better option? Do you mind just kind of digging into those parts of the, the lateral movement part of the game? Absolutely. Yeah. Those are my favorite to talk about. I really enjoy that. So um, again, anything an athlete does. So if I'm, if I'm training the athlete, okay, aside from the tennis player, there are seven movement patterns that I want all my athletes to become proficient at. That allows me um, on multiple levels to be able to help them become better specifically, okay, from, from terminologies, from cueing, from all that. If I, if I can get them to master those seven movement patterns, two of them are what you just said the lateral shuffle or the lateral run, or some people call it a crossover. So if I'm talking about the shuffle, the shuffle 
is the initiator of the lateral run as well. It's a lateral push-up. So whether I'm going to do a shuffle where for the listeners who aren't as familiar with just that terminology, a lateral shuffle means my gait cycle never crosses into the other leg's territory. So if I'm shuffling to my right and I push off my left, my left leg will finish its range of motion and then recover back under my hip, ready to do it again. My front leg will be doing the same thing, but just with a different purpose. As if I do a lateral run or a crossover, now my legs exchange positions just like normal gait. And I call it a hybrid gait, right? Because it's not not like sprinting straight and it's not like shuffling it's a little bit of combination of both right so they're both really important the lateral shuffle comes into play when decisions have to be made instantaneously like at the net maybe i just you hit a shot down the line and i did a stab a stab volley and it drove me almost into the doubles now i now and you're coming at the net and so I'll probably just shuffle back real quick because if I turn at all, I'm, I'm in jeopardy of you passing me or doing something different. So I might do a real quick shuffle right there. But typically, I don't have to shuffle a ton because it's because the stroke production requires me to have a unit turn, right? Or a shoulder turn or an open stance or a closed stance. So it's not like a basketball player who has to stay squared up a little bit more so a shuffle makes more sense so the, the athlete will naturally select the lateral run step or the lateral run because they can get their pelvis involved and they can get a little bit more of an acceleration they're a little bit faster that way but it also lends them to be able to uh, play the game better because it allows them to have that shoulder unit turn to be able to get into their ground stroke okay um and the gait cycle of a lateral run step or a crossover is we push with the back leg, which is identical to the shuffle. The initial response of the front leg, the initial response, like right off, that's, that's identical to the shuffle because we're going to push, we're going to have some pelvis uh, rotation, more femur rotation relative to the pelvis. It's going to open a little bit. But now where it separates is once my front foot now opens, I'm actually trying to get over that foot so that I can push down and back like I would be if I were accelerating. And by doing that and getting that front kneecap to turn in the direction I wanna go, it clears a pathway for my back leg to travel through. That's what's critical. As where the traditional crossover step that's been taught where the front foot stays completely straight and we drive up and over and across, it, 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 you're getting two femurs that are fighting each other versus working with each other and opening. One staying, one's trying to get across and they're, you're just not able to utilize the system as well. So, so I know that was a kind of a long-winded answer, but that, that's probably an answer that gets me excited or a topic that gets me excited to talk about human movement as anything. So hopefully that, that explained a little bit. <laughs> no, definitely. And I, I think that's really important that you kind of went into those details as well, because a lot of coaches, I think sometimes just from a lack of understanding, still try to teach the, the crossover step where the hips are kind of parallel to the baseline. And yeah. it's, well, if, if me and you to, were to race lead down the corridor and you were to shuffle and I was to sprint or turn my hips and run, there's only going to be one winner. 
And yeah, I think right. as soon as you put it into kind of those terms, I think coaches have that kind of aha moment and they're just like, oh, right. Yeah, that, that kind of makes more sense. And, yeah, that's right. and you said you lead with the kneecap opening up the hip. And I, like, I sell it in a, in, a, in a slightly different way, but essentially exactly the same thing. And I just say, girls or guys, you've got to open the hip. You've got to yep. put the hips in the direction you want to go because that's the gate. If the gate's closed, you can't go through the gate. And it's, it's the same principle. It. And yep. I think that's really, that's really important to, um, to understand. Uh, and you talked about obviously pushing with the back leg. Do you, as we're trying to get to that acceleration position, um, is there anything that you take from kind of, do you take anything from like track sprinters or anything that you look at any sort of like similar shapes? Do you think there's much crossover or is it a completely separate world? What, what's your opinion? No, I do. Yeah, no, I do. I think there's a lot of, a lot of crossover there. Obviously my intent and my task is different and that's where the limitations come from doing purely track stuff, mm -hmm. but what has to happen. So if you took a split step and you compared that with some uh, 100 meter sprinter coming out of the blocks, okay? So the 100 meter setup in the block at the set position, that is their split step. Okay. Our, our split step is feet parallel, okay? The moment we know which direction we're going out of that split step, we push, we open, and then we push. Okay, so we're, take, we're taking our center of mass from where it is and we're moving it in the direction we have to go with that back leg because the back leg is behind the center of mass and that makes you know, just mechanically more sense. We want, it's easier for me to push my center of mass than it is to pull it that way. Track athletes doing the same thing. They're, they're, they're pushing, they're opening once they get off that first, that first thigh drives out. Now they're pushing again and then they keep doing it. We're just doing it maybe for one or two steps and hanging a stroke or maybe three steps, whatever it is. But it's the same concept of body translation through space and escaping the current space and getting to new space. It, the, what separates, and this is where some coaches get confused, my eyes play such a critical role in the postures my body will undertake based on the vision I, that's coming into my eyes. So in track, I don't have to worry about anything except for staying in my lane and going straight. That's why I can literally look down in front of me and not worry. You can't do that in team sports. So my eyes naturally keep my posture a little bit more upright from the very beginning versus a track athlete who can just simply worry about the drive phase all the way through. You know, you and I playing tennis have to, or playing rugby is another sport where if you, you drop your head, you're probably going to be taken off in a stretcher because you didn't see what was coming, right? So we need to make sure that we understand when an athlete is learning the models of acceleration, we can take it from the track world, but there's going to be variation because the eyes are going to say, no, 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 I have to see over the net. I have to see what's coming potentially. And so I'm going to have a little bit of caution with my stride length because I can't overrun the play. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that's obviously a very important thing. And I'm going to, let's go down that rabbit hole just a little bit while, while we're yeah. on it. Um, now I've, I've tested athletes for however many years now, and I, and I know you will have as well. And sometimes my, my data that I'm getting from our, what we might class as like performance tests and our best athletes should be the best at our, our performance tests. But 
I think more often than not, and I've, I've tested, I've been very lucky to have some of the best players in the country within mm-hmm. our program over the last few years. And like, one plus one doesn't equal two all the time. Um, <laughs> so I've got some of these, these phenomenal players that maybe aren't quite as efficient over a zero to 10 or maybe a change direction test, but then they're still the best player in the country. And it's their perception, kind of action, reaction skills. So in terms of teaching that, is that a skill we can teach? Are we almost, I don't necessarily like this term, but you'll have to excuse me here, like stepping out of our lane. I think everything should be kind of, we should be working together, a very holistic approach. But are we almost stepping out of our lane if we try to get into those type of things? Like how how do you work as that with a coach and then with a sport coach? Yeah, that's an awesome question because uh, that's really where our profession's been heading, hasn't it? We've been trying to figure this, you know, because we lived in such a closed world of drilling for so long, like let's set up some cones and tell them to go to the cones and back, right? Now we realize, well, just like you said, gosh, my best athlete absolutely sucks at these drills. They're like awful, but yet they go out and they beat everybody, you know? And, And that ability that ability to perceive and have almost like that prediction model to be able to see things early. Number one, I think there's a definite genetic component to that. Number two, I think the way they were exposed to things growing up and having to read and problem solve situations created pathways in their brain that allowed them to become more acutely aware of their surroundings, just, just much more clearly maybe than some other athletes. So they can sense a down the line shot or a wide serve or a drop shot sooner. And and we're talking sometimes, Chris, and you know this, sometimes it's almost at a subconscious level. They just, their brain senses a body lean or a racket angle in their opponent that other players just don't pick up on. And next thing you know, they're starting to come out of their split step and actually starting to accelerate or creating an acceleration posture sooner than somebody else. Because you know as well as I do, at the level you coach, and then you get to the Nadal and and Serena Williams level, if you're not predicting movements a little bit and being very perceptive, there's no way you can get to how hard these guys and gals hit the ball now. It's just incredible. So I do think that now, in terms of crossing over into doing stuff that the coach should be working on, I think we can put them in situations, whether it's partner exercises, um, ball drop type drills, where you're forcing the player to not only read where the ball, so let's say I have a tennis, two tennis balls and I throw one like this, or I throw one like that, and you have to now go get it. Well, that is, you're, you're having to learn several things. Where'd the ball go? How, what angle did it go at? That's critical. What angle, what speed is it traveling at that angle? And they have to pick up on these things immediately. Same thing could be done as if you took your, your tennis team and you put, you put one player at the net and the other player at the baseline and one of the players had to get to the other side, the other one had to defend them. Well, that's an unbelievable way to teach them to read speed, angles, boundaries. You know, if I if I have them cornered and they only have about, you know, three feet on this boundary, well, I know I can make a play. But if they have 10 feet and they're really fast, now I have to take a different angle, a different vector to cut them off based on their speed relative to my speed. How do I know that? Experience. 
I only know if you and I played tag for one, say five minutes, one time, I wouldn't learn you very well and you wouldn't learn me. But if we played for a month consistently, by the end, nobody's going to score a point because we're going to be so used to each other's style. It's going to be really hard to play. Right. Mm -hmm. So that I think is something we can introduce without crossing the boundaries and saying, Hey, you know, hit the ball this way or whatever. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. So, yeah, I love that question. No, definitely. And I think it's, I, I look at it as like, as an athlete or as anyone, I think just in life, like you're a sum of your experiences and the more experiences you can kind of get on your, on your journey throughout life or as being an athlete, I think the better off you're going to be. So that, I think that comes back to what you're talking about there in terms of exposures, the more, the, the higher the number of exposures that you've got to working with different players, different game styles and within tennis, especially working in different surfaces. I think mm -hmm. that's going to put you, because obviously movements are going to be slightly slower on clay and things like that as we're kind of gliding into, into each shot. Um, and that comes back to kind of John Boyd's like OODA loop theory. We're not going to, I'm not necessarily going to go down that, that rabbit exactly. hole, but I think you, you made a very good point with, in terms of looking at racket head positions. If we're hitting that forehand, what's the athlete shaping up to, to look like? And that that's comes right. like from me, like something I've been thinking about after our last conversation um, a few weeks ago was, well, if we're the, the athlete that essentially is on the court the most and can develop their technical and tactical abilities and even psychological is, is going to be the best athlete for the most part. Like physical yeah. is kind of a little bit further down the tree um, or higher up the tree, whichever, whichever way you look at it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think the more we can look to develop those points. So whether we're playing mirror drills or even to take it to the extreme full court points with no ball and a racket. And I'd let, this is just kind of, a bit of a potentially a mad idea but if, if i'm playing newly and we're on opposite baselines and i'm hitting i'm looking to shape up and hit a forehand and i've the shape i've selected is to go maybe inside out i'm going to hit to your backhand for example then if you go to your forehand you clearly haven't read my my body That's position right. that well so and it's in, in something that i'm looking to introduce with my teams is oh well can we can we use this as some point play you've got a racket you've got a focus so much on what's actually happening with the racket and like the opponent's hand and the body positions that they're creating that you know where they're going to go before they've even made contact with the ball and that's where i think the difference is between kind of the elite and kind of just your top 200 players or even kind of top 500 players that's right i, I think that's so so uh on point and there's an exercise you'll enjoy this and i've, I've done it with little kids all the way up to high level athletes and with the high athletes, I use it as a warm up. with little kids, it's actually a training tool. I'll take a ball and I'll, I'll toss it up. But then one time I'll take my right hand and thrust it over the ball and the left hand under it, which is creating a top spin. But the top spin is going to my left, their right, if they're facing me. And then I'll do it the other way. Then I'll go like this when my thumbs are above the ball, my fingers above, you know, and I'll throw my thumbs under. They have to say, well, okay, that's backspin. So it's going to go away from me. Then I'll go like this and they're like, All right, I got to be ready. So, and then I'll do it at different angles. And what happens is eventually they learn to see it and they'll predict it before the ball touches the ground. They're already moving in that direction. So with my older players, I'll just use it as a warm up. And I'll tell them, hey, 
every time you move towards the ball, you either have to use an open step or a closed step to get to it. So they know because they've had experience, they know which way the ball is going, but now I can use that still as a reactive tool, but now I can, with them, I can address different foot placements. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. To do stuff like that. Or if I pull them away, so the ball is coming back towards me, they can do a forward step. Or if I spin them at it, now they can open up and create some space. So yeah, we can have some fun with it. No, absolutely. And I, I like that again. I think that's starting to, which kind of leads nicely into my next question is about kind of close versus open drilling and, and skill development. Um, and I think by doing that, obviously you're starting to bridge that gap a little bit. Um, just for the listeners that maybe aren't fully sure on kind of our coaches, maybe tennis coaches, what a closed skill is versus an open skill and how, how do we kind of bridge that gap? Is, is closed better than open? Is open better than closed? Do you mind just kind of delving down that rabbit hole for me? Love to. And it's a, it's a, that's a topic that's been around a long time. Even, even back when I was in uh, college, we talked a lot about that, but it was much more heavily tilted towards closed drills back then. Mm -hmm. And the reason is we can make them look real pretty. You know, we can, we can dress them up. We can make kids look great because they get, it's like a dance, right? They learn a dance over time. They look really good. And so we, we perceived that as learning was taking place and it was, but it wasn't complete. Right. So, an open drill is one in which the athlete has to make a decision based on what they read. There, there's going to be a task that an open and a closed drill are going to have. The open drill, the task is unknown until it occurs. And they're usually going to have to react to some kind of stimuli. It could be a coach pointing, could be a partner moving, it could be a noise, it could be a light, could be a color, could be anything. And they have to react as where the closed drill is something that the athlete's going to know. So the best example probably a lot of people know of would be like a 505 or a 5105 or a typical shuttle run, right? We, we have markers that we have to run to. When we get there, we change directions or we do something and then, and but, but it's very reproducible. So the benefits of a closed drill is you and I might notice in one or two of our athletes that man, they just don't plant well on their left side. Something about that. We need to put a little bit more time in that. We've got to figure it out what it is. Maybe they just aren't comfortable with it. So we can, we can develop a closed drill, which eliminates um, the need for subconscious readiness and um, uh, decision-making. We just say, hey, I want you to take three steps, plant and three steps back to me. But I want you to plant on your left foot, I want you to bend your knees this much. I want your foot plant this wide. I want a flat foot. And let's rep that out. Let's get three sets of five reps. We'll rest a little bit. We'll come back to it. So I can use that to develop maybe some physiological things, maybe some strength, maybe some mobility, stability. I can work on uh, maybe some energy system if I want in this closed drill type training. Now, and the benefit of that is I get quality reps and I know what I'm going to get out of it. Now, when we go to the open, now what we're working on is I can take that same left foot plant that I notice isn't very good, and I can expose the athlete to that, but they don't know when it's going to occur. So I could say, hey, start running. When I clap, now you're going to change direction, but use your left foot to come back. Right? That's, a, that's a, an example of one. Another one, because now chase your partner 
when they start running and they change direction, you have to match them, right? Mm -hmm. And what I've done is I've created the tier system that I developed actually a long, long time ago, but I've just kind of cleaned it up over the years. A tier one is an, it's an open drill, but it has a little bit of closed component to it because they know which direction they're going to go. They just don't know when. And who's that? That's a track athlete, right? They, when they're in the blocks, I, I know I'm going straight. I just don't know when the gun's going to go off. But if I do a tier two, that would be like I'm standing at the baseline. I don't know if I'm going to have to hit a forehand or a backhand. Or if my coach points right or left, I don't know. But once I go there, the drill's done. I walk back to the middle, like reset, split set, boom, and I go again. A tier three is now we enter the deceleration or the change of direction into it because now that's the pure mirror drill. Or like you and I are going back and forth or the coach continues to point and make them go. So we can see how we can logistically progress that from a tier one for my beginning athletes to a tier two. And then eventually when we want to throw the tier, uh, the change of direction and then we can do a tier three. Not that we can't go in any order, but that is a logistical or a, a logical uh, order to follow. And, but, but all of those do have an element of open and closed in them that we can prescribe if we choose to, right? So in an essence, that's what we're talking about with the open and closed. And I think it's important. Here's the one thing that I think I'm a little bit different, Chris, if, if, I, if you don't mind, if I take two more seconds here is I typically, after I've warmed my athletes up and they're ready to go, I typically start my training with the tier system, whether it's a tier one or a tier two. I don't usually do tier three right off. And I only give them a, a couple minutes of reactive movements. That does two things for me. It lets me know who I have today. What's my team look like today? Are they sluggish? It's almost like a readiness thing. Are they, are they getting ready? The other thing it does is it forces them to get emotionally connected because they can't move until they see a reaction or excuse me, until they have a stimulus. Either it's me pointing or their partner moving and they have to react to them then I backfill it with the correctives. Now I can go to the closed drill and say, yep, just what I thought. You guys had a long practice yesterday. You're really sore in your hips. So now we need to focus on this today. And that reactive tier system told me that. So, so that's just a little different approach that I take. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's important to mention as well, because a lot of people would go classical um, closed drills, develop a skill, hone it in, develop the attractors, the key points, and then we'll, develop again and feel like a flat, uh, Franz Bosch's kind of system the fluctuators and we'll kind of let them loose and right. we'll let them play whereas you've almost gone in the reverse we'll kind of see how they are and then we'll come back to we, we found a few weaknesses we'll nail those in and use it as like a readiness assessment which which makes sense yeah and you know why I use that and the reason I started doing it is because it gave instant context to the athlete so for example if we walked out on the court warmed up and I said, guys, we're gonna do a lateral shuffle, change of direction, but I want you to rotate kind of at the end or whatever. They're gonna say, okay, all right, let's do it. And they go and they do it. But if I put them in a drill where I said, on my command, start running. When I clap, you gotta get back as quick as you can. And, and a lot of them stumbled and they, they, they swayed and they got off balance. And now I can say, hey, listen, we're struggling with this. We're gonna do this lateral shuffle and then change directions. I want you to go to this line and back. They're like, Okay, that makes sense to me because I just struggled. So it immediately gives me a broad assessment. 
but it gives them context as to why my drill isn't just me pulling a rabbit out of the hat. I'm not just picking a drill I saw on YouTube. We're doing it because you just displayed to me you're struggling with something. Let's fix that. It'd be like if, if a player's having a hard time with their kick serve during a match, during doubles, maybe they're trying to kick the ball wide so they can poach and come in. Well, now the coach can say, you really struggle with that. Let's work on that. And the player can say, yeah, I was so frustrated. So now you've got context and you've got a lot more focus on the drill that you're about to work on. And then once you've done that and you've gone back to your kind of closed drilling to develop those, those key points, do you then go back to, to finish with the whole thing? So you're using a bit more of a whole part whole? Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly the way to put it. A whole part whole because the whole gives context and gives me a better view of who I'm working with. And then I can dial right in. Sometimes if you go close drill first, unless you're carrying it over from the last workout, which is it's definitely not wrong because sometimes that's what I'll do, mm -hmm. but you might be guessing because you're not quite sure. You're not quite sure how they're moving. They might come in today and be unbelievable movers. And if they are, well, then I don't bother with correctives because I never want to enter into my player's mind that they're doing something wrong. So I'm trying to fix that. I let them ride the high. And then on a day when they're struggling, I'll say, hey, let's work on that. That's cool. I'm struggling too today. I stayed up late. Let's, let's go ahead and work on that. And so we can, now we, they're more bought into my process of coaching them versus just putting them through drills, you know? Mm -hmm. And then if we just kind of keeping on those kind of assessment guidelines or the things that you're looking at there and how you look to progress things how are you and this is quite a big question um and i know we're getting getting on for time a little bit but i've got two questions left and this is this is one of them so in terms of change direction what assessments are you using and what are you looking at now i know that's not necessarily the easiest question to answer because yeah. through your eyes you're seeing things completely differently to myself and, and, and lots of other coaches just because you've been you've got the experience, you've seen thousands upon thousands sure. uh, of reps. Now, I think there's no, ex there's no kind of, you, the experience is the, the crucial factor there. But if you were to try and help out these the young coaches that are, that are coming into the field and wanting to work in, well, any sport really, um, apart from maybe a hundred meter sprint or your track athletes and they're working with really? these change direction um, athletes, like what are they looking at if you're having a change direction assessment is there a, I know it's a long-winded question, sorry, but is there a best assessment that you think they should use or, or what are you just using your eye? Kind of what's the best approach to go there? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So if we're going to talk about change of direction, the two typical ones will work on, it could be a, like of the shuttle run format where I'm actually running to a space and then I'm turning around and coming back. So that's a good one. Um, and it's easy and I'll explain why in a second. Or it could be a... Um, you know, it, it could be like a lateral shuffle, you know, change of direction. Okay. Those are two that I can cover my kind of my lateral run and straight ahead run to change of direction or just purely change of direction. Now, when I'm helping my interns uh, that I've had or assistants identify landmarks, that's when I will stick to a closed drill. And here's why unless I use video, if I use video, that's different because then I can capture even an open drill. But, mm. but if I use a closed drill, so they start to learn how to identify landmarks with their naked eye at full speed is we let them know what is the model of change of direction look like? So once my foot plants, 
what are we looking for kinetically? What do I want to see? So we'll talk about foot plant, pro, like we already talked about pronation. I'm going to get a little internal rotation. It's going to load up the hip. I'm going to, um, I'm not going into valgus. I'm not swaying and creating disjointed angles. We want to see those things. We want to see, you know, knee bend and whatever. So if I do that in a closed drill and they're going to, the athlete's going to move to a certain line on the field or on the court or or on the ice if we're dealing with hockey, I can have my, my uh, assistant or my interns look and say, this is where they're going to plant. So be ready, be ready. That's when you're going to identify the deceleration process or change of direction process is going to start occurring, start looking and watching. And I try to give them three things. The first time I say, watch lower body only, just look from knees down and just don't even pay attention to the upper body. The next rep, do just the opposite. Watch above the pelvis and up. Just see what the head, the neck, see where the chin goes, see what the shoulders are doing, and see if you can start to notice a little bit about the ribs, how it moves. And then, and then the third time, just glance at the athlete. Just get an overview, because a lot of times, all of a sudden, things will stick out really quick when you're getting an overview of the human body moving. You'll say, oh my gosh, I didn't even notice. They kept doing this every time they planted. I didn't, because I was too isolated, right? So, uh, and then, then I'll have them just keep repeating that. And then eventually, they get to the point where they start to know if, for example, Chris, if somebody plants on a flat foot, on an angle, and the shin is vertical, they have to be loading the heel. We know that from the weight room, just mechanics just tells them. But if the knee is pushed forward over the toes, well, it's a good idea that we probably have some loading at least the midfoot, but probably towards the ball of the foot. So then they can, the player can say, oh man, they just planted with a, with a vertical heel, and when they came out of that cut, they kind of staggered backwards. I'm like, there you go. Because they used the heel, they weren't loading the whole foot proprioceptively. That sent a different message to the body. So that's how I help them start to understand it. Look at the model. What should it look like? And really, a lot of times I'll just start them with landing off a jump. Because if they can start to identify if an athlete lands and their heels come way off the ground and the athlete steps forward out of their landing, I'm like, well, of course, they lost their balance, right? But if they landed on their heel and their knees were pushed back and they stepped backwards, I'm like, yeah, well, that makes sense. So that gives the play, the, not the players, but the, the younger coaches landmarks based on a model of movement. And then they can start choosing what's most appropriate. I like that as well. And it's, it's just breaking it down. And I think like we've all been guilty of trying to look at the whole picture and taking as much information as we can. And I think that's for a lot of, especially the younger coaches listening that, that don't maybe have a system of analyzing movement. Right. I think something as simple as that, just saying, okay, this rep, we're going lower body, this rep, we're going upper, then we're going to take, take in everything we can. And yeah. you're giving yourself more chance of success. That's right. And look at the model, you know, where yeah. should it be? You know, if somebody, you know, shanks a ball uh, on, a, on a ground stroke and we look and we notice, well, their, their racket head was tilted this way. And, and if you notice that, well, like, well, there it is. So that's what we try to do. Just look at the landmarks. What, what caused the problem? And, and then that helps them. Mm -hmm. And then just kind of moving on to our, to our final question now. And this is a very, this is potentially a harder question to answer. All right. Um, but how do we ensure transfer? 
Now, it's obviously, it is a very hard thing to do. You can look at kind of Verkashansky's dynamic yeah. correspondence as, look at, as much as you want from the weight room uh, and even like Bondichuk as well, like his system, yes. which, is, which is fantastic. But how do you kind of go about that? How do you make sure we get in some sort of transfer? Yeah, man, that's, and that's another topic that you know, everybody's kind of talking about in the, over the last few years. I guess the best way that we eventually can identify that is, are we seeing results? Are we giving enough time for our training protocol to, to you know, kind of permeate the athlete's central nervous system so it's no longer a conscious effort and it becomes a subconscious movement based on our coaching? And now are we seeing that? Like, are we seeing a, a player, a tennis player that, never used to do this particular movement. Now they are, and now they're having better success. And we're not only seeing better success by the metrics, but the player is saying, gosh, I feel so much better. It feels cleaner. It feels easier. Now we can say, hey, these three to four um, prescriptive drills that we gave and that's the only thing we change. That's the mistake most coaches make is they change everything. Mm -hmm. And now you're like, well, what actually mattered? You only get, you just, you got to pull out a couple things, give it some time. And that's how you know if it's working. If we're seeing that, then we can start to say, yeah, I think we're getting some transfer of the training there. Um, but if all of a sudden we take a new athlete that's never trained before and they start training and they get better, that doesn't necessarily mean our training transferred. It just means they had an exposure where they got stronger just naturally, especially young kids, right? Young kids, you could have them literally lift up their notebook 10 times in a row and they gain, they gain some central nervous system adaptation, right? As where if you just got a new division one transfer who's already an elite player, well, you're going to have to do something pretty good to get some to get some uh, adaptation to them. So, so that's my best answer. That's what I've always looked at. I'm like, okay, we got, if it's going to transfer negative or positive, right? Cause we got to look, is it negatively transferring? We have to buy some time. We have to select only a couple things. Don't cross off the whole board. Just take something out, try it. If that's good, try something else. And then we can start to say, what is the athlete telling me? And what do the results look like? But it's got it take. I just think it takes time. We can't judge it over four weeks, or I think it just takes longer. You know, one hundred percent. Yeah, and I think that's what Bondichuk did very well with his his system. He kind of just just tweaked one or two little things because if you throw everything out and change it all, and you have no idea what's going on. And do you that's think right. that's do you think that's something that you've learned kind of with your experience over the years? Like I know when I first started with the within like kind of this industry, you'd be like a wholesale changes left, right, and oh, center, yeah. and then now it's like okay, well let's it might be a little bit frustrating, but let's be really patient. Definitely, 100%, and, and, and on many levels. So from my strength training to my, to my mobility work, to my speed work, I've learned to be patient because I, I think what I identified over time is, um, you know, we gotta be in it for the long haul. The athletes have to be, we have to be, the system has to be, we, we've got it. So I'm okay with just saying, you know what? I'm just going to take exercise number five out and I'm going to take it out for this month or this cycle. Maybe I'm doing a four week cycle. I'm going to just take that one out and let's see what happens. And if I'm like, nah, that didn't do anything. And I'll either put it back in if I like it or I'll switch something else or I'll make 
like I'll keep that one out, take another one out, and then add two new. And then that way, at least I can systematically see what's making mm -hmm. the change. Oh yeah, early on though, I was like, ah, right, the hell with this. I was literally taking my paper and throwing it out, <laughs> rewriting, and then you're fixing it. Like, oh, I have no idea what I just did, but it's yep, you know, still yep. not working, so. <laughs> Definitely, and do you, in order to kind of know that you're improving and things like that, are you is this kind of just the eyeball test because like you've like i said earlier you've seen thousands of reps now you know if we're getting better transfer or are you running some performance tests or, or a combination of the two yeah a combination but i'm i'm the, the old and i think if you talk to a lot of older strength coaches they're like yeah i can just sense it i can feel it because i've watched enough that's the way i am i i'll document my numbers i got a kid now that i'm working with and we'll document his stuff but I watch him and I'm like, that just looks so much cleaner. It's less wasted motion. And, and he'll come back and say, at first it felt funny, but now I can feel it. And now I see what you're talking about. And so that's, that's usually my best input is when the mm -hmm. player says, yeah, now I'm getting it. Now I'm feeling it and I'm making the play easier. So, yeah. Uh -huh. um, and then just, just to finish off here, Lee, because I know we're kind of, we're touching on time. Um, but three final things. So just, just firstly, kind of, is there any, on this subject uh, in particular, are there any, any books that you would advise people go, go and pick up and, and things like that? You know, there's a book, it's a little bit, I don't, you and I might've talked about this, I'm not sure. It's a little bit deep, but if you want to understand what we talked about a little while ago about the kind of this perceptive model or predictive model, there's a book called On Intelligence. And it's Jeff Hawkins, and it has to do with how, you know, experiences and the brain stores information and it prunes useless information that's not being used very much. And it, and it bolsters information that you're feeding all the time. I loved it. I've read it probably like five times and it's, it's, it's fairly deep. I think that's a really, really good book. Uh, there's a book called Make It Stick, uh, which is a nice book. It's a learning, I, I think, I think a lot of coaches nowadays, uh, once they have a basic idea of movement and training and mechanics, keep learning. Don't get away from that, but start to learn how we learn. Like, if, because I, it just, it, it lets you cut in front of the line a lot quicker. You know what I mean? It just lets you skip stages because if now, if you're like, yeah, if I just use a, an external cue versus a, you know, internal cue, or, you know, if I use summary feedback versus this type of feedback, I just get better results quicker. So if they learn how to teach and learn how people learn, I think you just get a lot better at it. So those are some good books right there. And I think, yeah, I think that's some, some fantastic advice. And it leads into the next question actually quite nicely. Would any advice that you've got for any, any young coaches, maybe just getting into the profession or in the first kind of three to five years of, of their journey? Yeah, I, I'm a big fan, number one, of networking um, and networking for two reasons. Number one, there's always somebody that knows something you don't, okay? I, I follow your stuff on Instagram and on other stuff. I see what you do and I'm always taking notes and I'm always listening. If young people think they've got it figured out at 22, they're mistaken. They're never gonna make it in this or any other profession, right? So networking allows you to learn but it allows you to create solid connections to advance in a profession, right? If I was a young college student and I kept reaching out to you and you saw that I was getting pretty 
serious about a particular thing. And then eventually I said, you know, I need an internship. Would you be willing? You might be willing to take me on because you've developed a relationship with me and you know me as where if I just, you know, emailed you one day and said, hey, I need an internship. Would you let me do it? You'd probably say, yeah, like heck I would. Oh, you can can wash my car every day if you want. (laughs) So I think that's one of the big things. Make sure you network, make sure you reach out and don't be afraid to email and call people. If they say no, they say no. That doesn't, that doesn't break the bank on you. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And then just finally here, Lee, if anyone's got any, any questions about any of the topics or subjects that um, we kind of went over, I know we went over quite a lot of, a lot of different things today. Um, where, can they, where can they find you in like social media, things like that? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, anything at Lee Taft. So any of the social media is at Lee Taft. Um, and then if they just go to LeeTaft.com, they can find out stuff. I blogs and, and uh, you know, if they search YouTube, you know, they can find, I put a lot of free videos out there and uh, I'm always willing. I answer everybody. If I, if, if it takes me a couple of days, maybe sometimes, but I usually get to everybody right off. So uh, yeah, I appreciate you allowing me to share that, but this was, this was fun. I really enjoyed it. You do a great job interviewing. Oh, thank you. And I appreciate that. And I appreciate everything you obviously do for the for the profession as well. Um, and I would say for everyone listening, go and check out like Lee's YouTube channel, his website. There's so much like awesome free content on there. And I'll, I'll do the plug for you, Lee, as well. You have got your your tennis, um, is it tennis speed specialist certification coming out? I'll let you yeah. do, you, you correct me if I got that wrong, but you go for that. Thank you. No, I appreciate it. Yeah, we're going to launch uh, coming up here real quick, a uh, certified tennis speed specialist. Uh, if you go to ctss.co.co and then, uh, yeah, you can get on the list and it'll be sent out. We're really excited about it because it's just about giving a, a system of teaching and models of teaching how we want you know, our players to move and as athletes. So, uh, so yeah, I appreciate it, Chris. Thank you. No, no, no. I think that's going to be like a phenomenal resource as well for anyone, not Thank only you. tennis players, I think. I think it's any, anyone that works with any sort of movement sport, which is essentially everyone, the more you can understand and develop kind of more layers uh, to your knowledge there. It's just going to, it's just going to help you. So, and I, like I said, I've, I've already seen some of the things that you've put on YouTube recently, which are kind of linked to that course. And it's, blows my mind every time I go on that channel. So thank you for, for putting out fantastic content and, and thank you again for, for joining me today. I appreciate it, Chris. You're awesome. Keep it up. This is great stuff. You're changing the industry for us all. It's great. Thanks a lot, Lee. Appreciate it. Have a good day. You too, no. Appreciate it.